Hey there, misfits. This is Kate. And this is Cassie. Welcome to Horrorwood. That is not Kale. Kale is uh, out, of, out of town. So I have my first guest co-host today. This is Cassie Blythus. I'm saying that correctly, right? That is exactly right. Yes. Okay. I don't know why I second guessed myself because I knew that was your last name. Anyway, <laughs> um, but Cassie's amazing and she's an amazing hairdresser. And if you're in Chicago, mm-hmm. you should just have your hair cut by Cassie because she's awesome. Oh, thank you. Obs. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting to have someone new here in the pod closet. I like it. I'm very excited to be here. Yay. This past week, we hit 10,000 downloads and it was very exciting. Um, So thanks, listeners. We love you for it. And now let's get started. I have not told Cassie anything about this case. She doesn't know who we're covering. She is waiting with bated breath. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) So today we are talking about the murder of Dominique Dunn. Oh, yeah. She does sound familiar. Okay. uh, She played the older sister in Poltergeist. Okay. Yeah. So let's get into it. And I wish, Cassie, I wish that this was a lighthearted episode for you because <laughs> you're a very lighthearted person. I was like, yeah, Cassie would be great. And I was like, oh, wait, this is a fucking brutal case. No, no, no. I can be dark and, you know, mysterious. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's a rough one. So we begin this story at a restaurant. Mambezan was a struggling new restaurant in the early 1970s. After being open a couple of years, its owner, Patrick Terrell, made a game-changing decision in 1975 and hired a young new chef, a recent transplant to Los Angeles. That chef was Wolfgang Puck. Mm, Heard of him. Wolfgang and Patrick both had a passion for using locally sourced ingredients, essentially farm-to-table before farm-to-table was a term. Wolfgang used foods from local farmers and markets and paired that with a French cooking technique, creating a new type of cuisine known as California Nouvelle. Okay. Soon, Mamezan became the place to eat and drink. And one cool thing, the menus there were designed by such artists as Andy Warhol and David Hockney. They would change the cover of the menu like every six months and have a different artist design it, which was really cool. That's awesome. Is this one of, is this Wolfgang Puck's first restaurant or is he like established at this point? So he is not established. He's brand new. I think he was 25 when he started working there. Um, He had just come to Los Angeles and uh, he did become part owner of Mamezan. But yeah, no one knew who he was yet before this. It was a favorite hangout of the Hollywood elite. Jack Nicholson, Elton John, Marlon Brando, Rod Stewart were just a few of the regulars there. 
Orson Welles ate there every single day. So much so that Patrick got his mail and phone calls there. What? I mean, he really fucking loved the place, I guess. Wow. What made the restaurant so appealing to this group of clientele certainly wasn't the decor. Ma Maison was basically just a patio lined with astroturf that had like wooden folding chairs for seating and just garden chairs for seating. Because Patrick didn't have a lot of money when he opened it. So he used whatever he could find for cheap. The folding chairs were actually cast-offs from a nearby hotel that didn't want them. So he was just taking like whatever he could to make this restaurant. There were also little plastic ducks with lights inside as part of the decor. So it feels kind of cheap, but eventually this all added to the charm of the place. Patrick said he didn't need to make the place pretentious because the guests there were pretentious enough. Mm. What made the restaurant such a desirable destination was the fact that the average person had a hard time getting a table. It was a small, secluded place at 83... That's not how numbers are said. (laughs) At 8368 Melrose Avenue. Out front, the street was lined with one Rolls Royce after another. Patrick kept the number unlisted, claiming, quote, if you don't have our number, it's because we don't want you here. Wow. Elite. Yes, very. (laughs) However, the concierge at the Beverly Wilshire sold the number for $5 to anyone who asked. So it was just like, well, you're going to get there anyway. Okay, I love that. But the philosophy at Ma Maison was privacy. It was known as being one of the most discreet places in Los Angeles at the time. And this privacy allowed celebrities to feel comfortable. People would just get fucking wasted at lunch. Jack Lemmon used to go in early, sit at the bar, have two martinis, then sit down to lunch with whoever he was meeting there and have more drinks. Because God love him. Cheers. (laughs) The restaurant was only about a 15-minute drive from all the major studios at the time because there was a lot less traffic then. I mean, like, now it would take you an hour and a half to get there from anywhere in the city. So it was convenient. It was private. And thanks to Wolfgang Puck, it was fucking delicious. That kitchen was also a very high-pressure atmosphere, as all restaurant kitchens are. Have you seen The Bear? Uh, Only the first episode. (laughs) What? I know, I know. It's it's on my list. You live in Chicago and you haven't watched The Bear. Well, you did just tell me that you don't watch TV anymore. I know you can't. <laughs> you can't stay focused. So I guess I should have known the answer to that. No, it's it's on the list. I I feel like I will love it when I watch it. Well, for listeners who've seen The Bear, it's uh, it's basically just like a high pressure situation and shows like kind of the the goings on of a restaurant like how that all happens so if you imagine that but all of your customers are a-listers just extremely high profile you have to be on top of your game and they want the spaghetti right (laughs) they want the spaghetti isn't that a thing from the bear the spaghetti no shit is it i mean it's been a while (laughs) since i saw it and if it was only in the first episode then i definitely forgot (laughs) i think that's Part of it is that they all like want the spaghetti oh, that's duh. really random, oh my God. right? <laughs> yeah, that's like they have family dinner. Oh my God, okay. fuck me. That's yeah. <laughs> they have the family dinners and they have spaghetti. Yes, that's like that actually plays a very big role in the season finale. Oh my God. Okay. 
which you wouldn't know because you didn't see nope. <laughs> All right. Uh, Wolfgang really became a star working at Ma Maison. It put him on the map, basically. And of course, every head chef has a sous chef, sort of their right-hand man or woman. And Wolfgang Puck's sous chef was a man by the name of John Thomas Sweeney. And Cassie, you're new here, mm-hmm. but it's been established that anyone who goes by three names is a murderer. Yeah, no, that checks out big time. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm so we're just looking out little, for John Thomas Sweeney. We are. There's a little okay. foreshadowing. <laughs> Also Sweeney, I mean. Sweeney. And I'm going to say this. So there is a John Sweeney that was a serial killer in England. This is not the same person. So just to clarify that. And I will also say that everyone called this man Sweeney. They didn't call him John. However, I'm going to call him John for reasons which I'll talk about in part two. Great. By the way, there's a part two. Can you come back? I'm coming back. Okay, great. (laughs) I'm already excited about it. (laughs) John Thomas Sweeney was born in 1956 in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, which used to be a big coal mining town. It was a poor town. He didn't have a great childhood. John was the oldest of six. They didn't have much money. His dad worked at the local beryllium plant. uh, But I also read that he was uh, unemployed as well. So I'm not sure that his work was steady. And his mom worked as a waitress. And sadly, his dad was also an alcoholic. He was physically abusive to John's mom, often in front of John. And if John tried to intervene, his dad would start beating him. John's parents divorced when he was 14 years old. And John learned to make his own way. He wanted to distance himself from his family, and he aspired to be someone important. He decided he wanted to be a chef. And so he went to culinary school and began working in restaurants in Pennsylvania. The abuse he suffered in his childhood, obviously, caused a lot of anger in him. Co-workers said he had a short temper. One man said that a guy had tried to hit on John and John didn't like that. So he, quote, went after him. He doesn't elaborate on what exactly went after him entailed. I'm assuming it wasn't anything good. Yeah. John began taking self-defense classes. He did karate. He did the nunchucks. He was very athletic. And he was a big guy. He was a little over six feet. Very muscular, big dude. In addition to karate, another hobby of John's was painting. Which sounds pretty fucking chill. Like, nice easy, calming hobby, until you learn that he painted with blood. Oh, okay. Well, that's, yeah, that's different. There are red flags, but also like, you know, art is art. <laughs> sure. Art is art. People have their ways. <laughs> yep. His favorite artist was Salvador Dali, who was known to paint with blood. So John's like, that sounds great. What a great way to save money on art supplies. Blood it is. There you, that's, that's a thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. His coworker said, quote, I believe it was his own blood. I was afraid to ask. So there's that. Yeah. John was determined to become a success. He wanted to become a big time chef and knew that meant he needed to leave Hazleton, Pennsylvania. And that's exactly what he did. 
He eventually made his way to L.A. and became the sous chef at Ma Maison working under Wolfgang Puck. I don't think the two of them knew each other prior to that. I don't think this was like a friend of Wolfgang. So I'm not trying to associate the two of them. Just know that he was Wolfgang's right hand man for a time. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. And he seemed to really thrive in that high-pressure situation. A co-worker of his said that John was always high energy, got along with everyone, that he was a bit temperamental, but that's not uncommon in the restaurant industry. When Wolfgang left to open his own restaurant, Spago, in 1981, John Thomas Sweeney became the head chef of Mamezan. So that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Robin Leach, as in Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous Robin Leach, once described the restaurant as, quote, the favorite culinary playground for Hollywood's rich and famous. So John is now the head chef, and he's following in the footsteps of Wolfgang Puck, so he's doing really well for himself. He's on a great path. Around this time, in the fall of 1981, at a private Hollywood party, John met actress Dominique Dunn. Dominique Ellen Dunn was born November 23, 1959, in Santa Monica, California. She was the youngest of five, but two of the babies born before her, they were both girls, died within just a week of their births. I think it's fair to say that Dominique was born into privilege. Her mother, Lenny, was the heiress to a ranching fortune, And her father was successful producer, writer, and investigative journalist, Dominic Dunn. She is the niece of writers John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion. She had two older brothers, Alex and Griffin. Griffin is the oldest. He became a director. He's directed such movies as Practical Magic and Addicted to Love. And he's also an actor. Most people probably recognize him as the older version of Nikki Pearson on This Is Us. Did you see? Did you watch This Is Us? Oh, I did. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. Oh, he's also in uh, My Girl. He's the. He's in My Girl. Yeah, he's like the teacher that Veda has a uh, crush on. And oh, he he's is. Like, you know. Oh yeah. He's like Bill, right? His yeah. Yes, Bill, because she sings to him. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, when I saw him on This Is Us, I was like, oh, the only other place I'd seen him was, oh, that's the guy from My Girl. Oh, that's wild. Okay. Yeah. So yes, I know who that is. <laughs> So that's so that is uh, Dominique's older brother. Oh, okay. Oh. Dominique's childhood was quite different from John's. Dominique grew up in a home located at 714 Walden Drive. It's over 7,000 square feet. It has seven bedrooms, seven bathrooms. It's a mansion. And Dominic, her father, being in the industry he was, hosted a lot of parties at the home. Frequent guests included... Natalie Wood, Mia Farrow, Ryan O'Neill, Elizabeth Montgomery, and George Hamilton, to name a few. Wow. All right. Sadly, Lenny and Dominic Dunn divorced in the late 60s, but Lenny kept the home in Beverly Hills. Dominique lived in both Los Angeles and New York. Her dad had moved to New York. So she kind of split her time between both coasts. Uh, shortly after the divorce, Lenny was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and was confined to a wheelchair and eventually had to give up the mansion because it was just too much for her to manage in her condition. Dominique was devastated when they had to give up that home because that was her childhood home. She grew up there. Her dad describes her as, quote, extravagantly emotional. 
she was a sentimental kid, you know, like the home had a lot of meaning for her. And overall, she had a great relationship with both of her parents. So splitting her time, like that wasn't an issue for her. Uh, But she did miss that home. Dominique attended the very prestigious Harvard Westlake School in Los Angeles. It serves grades 7 through 12. You have to pay tuition to go there. It is not cheap. She also attended the Taft School in Connecticut, another prestigious private school. That one was grades 9 through 12. And another grade 9 through 12 school she attended was the Fountain School of Colorado, which was another private school. I hope that's not a typo, and I hope that it is Fountain, because for some reason that doesn't sound right to me. But regardless, it was another private school. Her brother Griffin had also attended that school. Um, so it kind of made, because at first you're like Colorado, what? But it kind of made sense. Okay. So she was moving around a lot, but it sounds like she was always with family. She was always in a great place. She had great schooling. And after she graduated, she enrolled in the University of Colorado to study acting. She left and moved to Italy for a year and did a year abroad in uh, Florence and learned Italian and also studied art there. And when she returned to the U.S., she began studying at Milton Katsellas Acting Workshop. Other students of Milton Katsellas include George Clooney. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Mm, yeah, I think I recognize that name. So, sounds familiar. Gene yeah. Hackman, Miguel Ferrer. Ted Danson, Doris Roberts, Michelle Pfeiffer. So it was a pretty good program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dominique began performing in theater productions, but had her sights set on TV and film. Her favorite actresses were Julie Andrews, Jane Fonda, and Natalie Wood. And she dreamed of having a career like theirs. Once she set her sights on being in front of the camera, she began landing roles almost immediately. I read that... Like, she got an agent, and then a week later, she booked her first job. Oh, wow. Like, and this is right out of college, right? Is that, yeah. Okay. So she's still pretty young. Yeah. Her first gig was the TV movie Diary of a Hitchhiker. Sorry, Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker, and that was in 1979. She began booking guest spots on TV shows like Family, Lou Grant, and Breaking Away, as well as more TV movies. Then in 1981, she landed her breakout role as Dana Freeling in what would become the blockbuster hit, Poltergeist. I'm not going to talk about the Poltergeist curse in this episode because I'm going to do a separate episode on that. I know listeners are like, there's a curse, though. This is, you know, there's a lot say, to isn't it. Isn't there like other people from that? Yeah. OK, great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going to do that in another episode. Great, but great, don't great. worry, it's coming. Dominique filmed the movie from May through August of 1981. And when filming wrapped, Dominique was still going to acting class. She's got a great group of friends, but there was no guy in the picture. And she didn't really have, like, boyfriends. That fall, she and her friends decided to throw a Sagittarian birthday party. Fun. Okay, I didn't know... that. Is this a thing? Oh, uh, no, I have no idea, but it just sounds fun. <laughs> Because I, I actually Googled it. I was like, is there a thing that's a Sagittarian birthday party? She was a Sagittarius. Okay. So I think it was just like an excuse to throw a party and like try to meet guys. Basically, yeah. that's what her friends were doing. Okay. Okay. I like, Which, yeah, I like it. Sound that sounds fun. fun. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole point of the party was to meet dudes. 
They planned everything out, the food, the guest list, all that. But the party kind of turned out to be a dud. By the end of the party, she and her friends are cleaning up. None of them had met anyone new that they were interested in. And pretty much everyone had gone home at this point. Is that because all of the Sagittariuses wouldn't um, actually confirm that they were coming to the party? That is fucking hilarious and probably. <laughs> That's my Sagittarius joke. <laughs> like it. Um, then the doorbell rang. It was two men. One was a guy named Robert that people there knew. He was friends with them. And the other man was John Thomas Sweeney. Gloria Gifford, a friend of Dominique's who was also in her acting class and was one of the girls that had helped plan this party, said that when she saw John, she just didn't like the way he looked. She said, quote, he was pasty. His skin was pasty. It had no color to it. And he was nondescript looking, <laughs> which describes me. So I'm just going to move on. <laughs> John immediately zeroed in on Dominique and they hit it off. It seemed they had a lot in common. She was an up-and-coming actress. He was working at one of the most exclusive celebrity hotspots. So they were each creatives in different ways. They both loved Europe. She had just spent a year in Italy. He had just spent a year in France because Patrick Terrell and Wolfgang Puck had sent him there to brush up his culinary skills before taking over as head chef. Can I ask, is is he, what's the age difference? Do you know? He's like three years older than Oh, okay, okay. They're, they're roughly the same age. Okay. I think they met when he was 25 um, and she was getting ready to turn 22. Okay. They also both loved animals. Dominique was a big animal rescuer. As her dad put it, quote, she was a collector of stray animals. <laughs> and John just doted on her. Which, according to her friends, seems to be a big reason why Dominique was interested in him to begin with. Because he was just giving her 100% of his attention. One of Dominique's close friends, Erica Elliott, said that Dominique really wanted a boyfriend. I mean, because she just hadn't like really been dating. She's been working a lot. She's in classes. And like that just hadn't been a thing for her. So she was in a position where she just she just wanted a boyfriend. And John had a vulnerable side that he only let Dominique see. Erica said, quote, she looked at him as a poor animal that needed love. Oh. I feel like that's a common thing females yeah. in particular do, especially when we're young. I'm not saying all females do this, but I certainly have. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know if it's like a maternal instinct thing or what, but we think less of what it is we actually want in a partner and more like how we can support and care for that I'll be person. so good at taking care of you. Yeah, and it's like, you look back now and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> but yeah, when you're in your early 20s and single, it makes sense that you'd want a romantic partner, someone who shares similar interests. For sure. Actor Miguel Ferrer, who was good friends with Dominique, uh, and he, I mean, he's like a really famous actor. So people out there know him. Um, he said that the first time he met John, he thought he was a great guy. He seemed to care about her. He was funny and charming. But other friends of hers didn't feel the same way. One of them, Charles Wessler, said when he met John, it seemed like he was a phony, like he was trying a little too hard to fit in and he just seemed fake. The three of them had gone out to dinner, and John ordered a bottle of Dom Perignon, just casual, 
<laughs> and then before they had even gotten through half the bottle, John ordered another one. And Charles said, none of us had any real cash at the time. Like, we're all just starting out in our careers, you know. So to him, it was like, what does this guy think he's doing? Like, like a what, show off. Kind of. Yeah. Like, what is this? For Dominique, though, things seemed great in the beginning. Well, yeah. Champagne's flowing. Exactly. It was that honeymoon phase. Everything's new and exciting. You have inside jokes with each other. You can't keep your hands off each other. Every time someone mentions the other person's name, you can't help but smile. It's like, I mean, I think we've probably all been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was during this lovey-dovey time, just a few weeks after they had met, that Dominique and John decided to move in together. Okay. Dominique had just turned 22 and John was 25. They got a quaint little house at 8723 Rangeley Avenue in West Hollywood. Yes, it is still there. If you go there, look at it, take your pictures. But like people live there. Okay. There was, a, in case you're visiting yeah, St. Cassie. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> there was a porch in the front and a yard out back for all of Dominique's pets, which included a cat with a lobotomy and a large dog with stunted legs. Because she liked the misfits. Soon after the two moved in together, John's demeanor began to change. He became possessive. Dominique was booking all these roles, going to rehearsal. She's on set all the time. And he was jealous. Once Poltergeist was released at the beginning of June in 1982, people started recognizing her. She had fans. It was a huge hit movie. It was Steven Spielberg. Dominique, for the time being, overlooked John's obsessive behavior. It frustrated her. It was an issue in their relationship, but she felt like she was in love with him. You know, she can overlook some yeah. things. And the obsession can feel like love. And, right. You know, when someone's yeah. devoting, like, all of their attention to you, like, that can be a little intoxicating, especially in the beginning. So she's... She's in love. She even brought him to New York to meet her dad and two brothers where they were all living at the time. The All the guys were. And it was around the 4th of July. So it was a holiday getaway. When they met up, they all got together and Dominique had just guest starred in an episode of Fame, the TV series Fame. So they all watched it together. Very cute. And then they went out to dinner. Right off the bat, her family didn't like John. Her dad said there was just something off-putting about him, but no one voiced their concerns to Dominique. Which, if you've ever been in that situation where someone you love is with someone that is clearly not good for them, it's that tough position. Like, do I say something or let this run its course? Are they going to get married and I'm going to never be able to (laughs) say this again or feel awkward for the rest of our relationship, for sure. Exactly. Like it could certainly backfire. So it's a tough position. So while at dinner, John had gotten up, maybe to go to the bathroom or something. I don't know. And Alex and Griffin started teasing Dominique. And they're like, oh, are you two going to get married? When's the wedding? You know, like brothers will. I don't know. I don't have brothers, but that's what we do. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So that kind of thing. And she replied, oh, no, we're not getting married. So there was definitely already signs that maybe she was becoming disillusioned with John. Okay. Her dad, Dominic, left the group to go home, and Alex, Griffin, Dominique, and John continued hanging out. They were at PJ Clark's in Manhattan. It's a very popular bar and restaurant. And John got up to go to the bathroom. 
while he was away from the table, a guy at the bar recognized Dominique from Poltergeist and he shouts, what's happening? Which is Dominique's iconic line in the movie. She screams it because you're looking at me like, (laughs) what is happening? (laughs) She screams it as evil spirits are taking over the family's home. It's the clip that they showed on TV. It was like in all the promos. And it's like this like big climactic moment. She's like, what's happening? I saw it one time. I feel that sounds sort of familiar. Yeah. So, yeah. So this fan, you know, he's just like screaming her line. Oh, my buddy. The boyfriend's not going to like that. (laughs) You're exactly right. So (laughs) the guy at the bar is just excited to see someone that is like in a current movie. And he starts chatting with Dominique literally for like just a few seconds. He just wanted to go up and meet her. Yeah. And he was excited. Like, Oh my God, you're that girl. John comes out of the bathroom and sees him talking to her flies into a fit of rage. Mm. He picks the guy up and starts shaking him. What? Yeah. His reaction was completely out of proportion with what was going on. And Alex called their dad the following morning to tell him what happened and was like, dude, this guy is scary. Like, yeah, who is she dating? You know? So the next day, Dominic met his daughter and John for lunch at Lutest, which it doesn't exist anymore. But at the time was one of the nicest restaurants in New York. I think like if you were to Google it and like go on the little things, you know, I think it's like four dollars. Oh, okay. Like, fuck yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. Dominique and John were very late, and when they finally arrived, John is chatting it up with a the chef there because they knew each other. They're speaking to each other in French. The chefs are, like, so excited to see him. And so the chef comped their entire meal as a chef's courtesy because it was John. John is the head chef of Mamezan. Big deal. It was all very showy, and John liked that. And he had this little bit of power at this particular restaurant, Dominic said he could clearly tell that Dominique had been crying and there was tension between them when they had arrived. And aside from his yucking it up with the chef there, John just seemed kind of nervous and uncomfortable and very difficult to talk to. So the vibes just weren't right. Yeah, I've definitely been in those situations where you someone's clearly been fighting beforehand and yeah, like, oh, great. This super is be awkward dinner. Yeah. And it's her dad. And <laughs> yeah. she's like, who already doesn't like him. Yeah. Then on the night of the 4th of July, the three of them went out to a very schmancy restaurant called the River Cafe, which is underneath the Brooklyn Bridge. It is still there. It's one of those where the food is so expensive. They don't even list the prices on the menu because I looked it up and I was like, okay, there's some there's like some really I can't even like say half these things on here and there are no prices. So it's one of those. And this is all in one day. They're doing all of this fine dining. It's in like the same oh, weekend. Okay, but yeah. But like, it's like this day they went to this restaurant. The next yeah. day they went to this. Like, it was, they were living it up. I mean, I guess he's a chef. That make, made sense, yeah. I guess. And I mean, the Duns came to yes. head money. So it's like going to Chili's for them, maybe. Maybe? No? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I see what you're saying. Like, <laughs> like it's no big deal. Right, right, right. <laughs> no, it's not like chilies at all. It's like, it's a little different than that. Yeah. <laughs> For them, it's, it's their chilies. Yes, it's their chilies. 
Uh, They had a table by the window with a perfect view of the fireworks. It was a gorgeous evening. And suddenly John drops the bomb that he's planning to leave Mame's on. He's going to open his own restaurant on Melrose Place, which was a highly coveted location in L.A. And he was already backed by several French and Japanese businessmen. And John didn't seem to have anything nice to say about his boss at Mamezan, Patrick Terrell. I'm not sure what his feelings were about him at the time. According to Dominic, it seemed there were just bad feelings between them, which is interesting because of something I'll bring up later. Actually, it might come up in part two. I don't think John ever really had plans to open his own place. I think he was making it all up to try and impress Dominique's dad. Because John could tell that Dominique's family didn't like him. And he believed it was because he didn't come from money. He believed the Dunn family looked down on him because they were of a higher, quote, social class. That was not it at all. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he assaulted a fan out of nowhere and was just like an overall scary guy, but that's just my opinion. I probably wouldn't love anyone after that either. <laughs> yeah, it's very um, it's very telling. But anyway, so he thinks it's because of his background. John's possessive behavior began to show more and more once they were back home in L.A. John started dressing in the same... This is like fucking weird. John started dressing in the same colors that Dominique was wearing. So if they went out and she wore a blue dress, he would wear a blue shirt and blue pants. It was like a weird sort of claiming thing. Yeah. Like, she's mine, we're together. And as we've seen in so many cases, he started pulling her away from her friends. He didn't like it if she was going to go hang out with people. If she was going, he insisted on going too. And he began accusing her of sleeping with other men he convinced himself that she was having an affair with her acting coach, Milton Katselis. She was not. He hated that her acting teacher was a man. He couldn't handle it. Then he tried to dictate her career decisions. She had just started filming the TV movie Shadow Riders with Tom Selleck and Sam Elliott. You can watch it for free right now on Tubi. And John basically tried to tell her she shouldn't do the movie. I think he thought she was going to have an affair with one of our co-stars. Like that seemed to be kind of his, his thinking. And she was really upset about it. It's giving Simon Monjack vibes, which you just listened to that episode. So like, you know what I'm talking about? No, I'm like having like all these flashes. Like I literally am thinking like if I had a nickel for every story about a successful woman with a jealous man. Yeah. Stopping her from whatever is like, I'd have like $100. (laughs) It's pretty fucking ridiculous. And unfortunately, in the case of John Thomas Sweeney, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because he, like his father, reportedly had a problem with alcohol. And when he would drink, he would fly into a rage. We see this so many times in cases, how these patterns are set up within families, Mm -hmm. like these cycles of abuse and Without professional intervention and therapy, they just keep repeating. At one point, Dominique went to her mom, Lenny's house, and she's crying. And she told her mom what a terrible temper he had. She said, quote, he smashes furniture, he throws dishes. And Lenny said, Dominique, that's frightening. And Dominique said, oh, he never hurt me. Mm. So it's like, and it's easy as an outsider to... To go, oh, no, honey, things are only going to get worse. Like, you've got to get out. But when you're in it, 
you don't necessarily look at it with a clear set of eyes. Well, yeah, I mean, like they can, you know, violence towards other people or rage or whatever. If it hasn't happened to you quite yet, like you might think like I but I'm the exception, you know, it's right. very, a very easy thing to fall into, I think. Yeah. And you you think that you're in love with this person yeah. and you think, well, they could never possibly hurt me. But uh, it's just like, oh, there's so many warning signs. In an interview years later, Dominic Dunn said, um, or he recalled meeting John, and he said, quote, there was something creepy about this guy, but women liked him. Mm. And the interviewer asks him, did you try talking to Dominique about it? And you can see Dominic hesitate. And I know there was a lot of guilt there. And yeah. he finally says, we didn't know he was abusive until it was too late. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a hard thing to talk about if there's nothing to talk about. Only your right. speculation and things that you think might happen in the future. Exactly. Like, people don't want to hear that, unfortunately. It sucks. But in often people are right. But it, yeah. Ugh. Tensions between Dominique and John escalated on the evening of August 27th, 1982. John had taken some pain pills and was drinking wine. And the two began fighting. John grabbed Dominique and banged her head into the floor several times, but he did not stop there. He then began pulling out chunks of her hair. Dominique left and again went over to her mom, Lenny's house, just sobbing uncontrollably. She told her mom what had happened and decided to stay there for the next couple of days. She's going to lay low. Which are like, yes, get out, stay out, get away from him. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like, I, so far, everything that you've said, like, she actually seems like a pretty, like, level-headed person. And, like, she, she is. Like, she's not, not like your typical, like, oh, no, he'll never hurt me. But it feels like she's, like, from, at least from what you're saying, like, that she's sort of thinking about these ahead of time. Like, absolutely. Like, yeah, ugh. she's very smart. She has a great family, like, support system. Making good choices post the thing that happens, but, you know, that yeah. it's, it's too late. However, John showed up at Lenny's the next day with a big bouquet of flowers, oh, was super apologetic. He's so sorry. He's feeling all this remote remorse. And he convinced Dominique to come back home. Yep. They did go to a therapist and try to work on the relationship, but the violence continued. On September 26th, about a month after he convinced her to come home, the two had a couple of friends staying with them who were visiting from Chicago. The four of them went out. They had dinner at Mame's on, then went to a bar for some drinks and just had a good time. At the end of the night, back at the house, Dominique and John went to their bedroom to go to bed while their friends Brian Cook and his girlfriend Denise Dennehy were getting ready to sleep on the couch in the living room. Brian said that suddenly they heard arguing and then Dominique yell, help, help. So Brian gets up and goes to their door and just says, knock it off, deal with it in the morning. It's like, mm, there's probably a better way to respond in that situation. But I don't know why I wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think if my friend were screaming for help, I'd open oh, the door yeah. and try to help. <laughs> for sure. Ugh, okay, so shortly after this, Dominique was yelling for help again. So Brian gets up, and as he tried to open the door, he could see John pull a chair in front of it to block it. 
oh my God, what was he doing? Then all of a sudden there was a loud sound. Brian described it as a clunk. And then he could hear gasping. He said it was the most horrendous sound he'd ever heard in his life. Oh my God. Finally, the door opens and the two of them came out and Dominique ran toward Brian and he could see she had marks all over her neck. They were all scared of John at this point, but when they confronted him, he denied that he'd even touched her. Just like, yeah, I don't know how those marks got on her neck. I don't know. I don't know what you heard. I didn't hear any gasping sounds. I haven't touched her. You said he's a big guy, right? Big guy, yeah. yeah. Dominique then asks John if she can go to the bathroom. Like, asks his permission. Which, this must have been so fucking terrifying, the fact that she felt she had to ask him because she knew that if she just went to the bathroom, he could, like, who knows what he's going to do. So John said she could go. But Dominique didn't actually need to use the bathroom. She only asked so that she could make her way outside to her car. Smart. Yeah, she is. She's getting in her Volkswagen convertible and getting out of there. The three inside the house hear her car start up, so they all run out. And John jumps on the hood of her car. But Dominique just started driving. So John is holding on to the windshield wipers as Dominique is driving down the street. What? She only went about a block before she stopped just long enough for him to get off her car. And then she continued driving to the house of a family friend, which it's like, thank God. When she got there, she was in a t-shirt and jeans, but no shoes because she'd been getting ready for bed when everything went down. So she ran out of that house barefoot. She drove to that house, to her friend's house barefoot. The family friend she drove to was artist Norman Carby, the reported longtime boyfriend of her father, Dominic. But that's maybe for another episode. Oh, okay. He let her stay at his house that night. And the next morning, he took photos of the strangulation marks around her neck. Good. There's a photo from this where she's smiling because Norman had just joked with her that now she wouldn't need makeup for her audition later where she was reading the role of a battered teenager. Oh, my God. Look, that role was for Hill Street Blues. She did book it and no, they did not need to put any makeup on her. Wait, is that real? That's real. Whoa. The bruises she has on the show are the real ones from John Thomas Sweeney. You can easily find clips of it online and it's freaky. That feels irresponsible, right? (laughs) Yes, it does. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You would think that the makeup department would be like, honey, are you okay? Yeah. Can we get help? Oh boy. This isn't right. Yeah. So many, there's just Uh. like, looking back, it's easy for us to be like, sure. Yes. But (laughs) God, ugh. Dominique feared for her life and went into hiding. Only one or two people knew where she was and they weren't talking. Her friends couldn't reach her. It was a scary time and she wanted to move on and put the relationship behind her. John, meanwhile, is doing everything he can to find her. He calls up Miguel Ferrer at his home, accusing him of having an affair with Dominique. And he's like, I know she's there. I know what's going on with you two. Her dad's boyfriend. Right? No, oh, no, oh. this is Miguel Ferrer, the oh. actor. Oh, okay. Her, her <laughs> friend. Yeah. For the record, nothing was going on between them. They were friends. Yeah. Okay. 
Miguel was the one who in the beginning thought John was a great guy. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, he's that one. But now he's seeing his true colors. John starts threatening Miguel and says, I'm going to come over there. And Miguel was like, come on over. (laughs) John didn't go over there, and Miguel never heard from him again. When Miguel finally was able to get in touch with Dominique, he asked her about John, like, is this what he's always been like? And she just kind of laughed it off as though she was embarrassed by it. And I feel like that's a common thing I hear about among people in those situations. Like they feel ashamed or whatever, even though they have nothing to be ashamed about, but they're just like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, and that makes sense. Like going through something like that probably makes you feel silly and stupid and you don't want to. Yeah, no, that you're not. But exactly. But that's yeah. It's just like. Oh, just tell someone, you know, I just, yeah. it didn't occur to John like, huh, maybe she doesn't want me to find her because I beat the crap out of her. No, it couldn't be that. She must be sleeping with someone else. No. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, John Thomas Sweeney. Eventually, Dominique did come out of hiding and she broke things off with John. They came to an agreement, surprisingly enough, that she would be the one to continue living in the house and he would move out. And she wanted him to get therapy. She was like, I can't even think about us being friends or anything unless you get some help. Even after John moved out of the house, Dominique continued staying with friends because she was afraid to go home. I mean, rightfully so. Yeah. He started stalking her. He was stalking her before stalking was even a term that people recognize. Like this is several years before the Rebecca Schaefer case. So the, it wasn't even like something that people went, oh, this is this is bad. This is illegal. Yeah, but it was happening. Yeah. He began showing up at her acting class, just waiting for her to arrive. So one day a classmate of hers goes out there and says, she's not going to come in if you're here. You've got to leave. And he's like, well, I'm just really hoping that she'll talk to me. And her friend was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. But he stayed there for the whole class, just waiting for her, hoping to see her. And she, so she didn't go in. Yeah. She just left. On October 12th, Dominique called a locksmith to change the locks at the house on Rangeley Avenue. She felt like if the locks were changed, maybe she'd feel a little more comfortable staying there. So when the locksmith was there, he was like, oh, why are you getting the locks changed? And she told him that the reason she was doing it was because she was having a problem with a guy. And then who drives by? Oh, fucking john thomas sweeney and there he is that is exactly what happened she sees him and she's like tells the locksmith uh well and that's him that's the guy that's the reason fucking creepy so obviously this leaves her on edge she still doesn't feel comfortable enough to stay in the home and this feeling of uneasiness spilled over into her work i mean it would be hard not to sure the day after she changed the locks she began shooting the series v And the director could tell she had some stuff going on. But when he asked her about it, she would just say, oh, it's personal. Like she was trying to keep it professional. Yeah. On October 25th, Dominique got up the courage to move back into her house on Rangeley Avenue. And despite everything, she still had that part of her that wanted to care for John, wanted to help him. He knew how to manipulate her into making her feel something for him. Like when he showed up at her mom's house with flowers and was acting like this hurt little puppy dog. Yeah. And when you step back and look at it, you can see like, oh no, that that's not sweet. He's he's not trying to make amends. He's just manipulating her. Yeah. 
Dominique writes John a letter, and it says, I need more time. I think good thoughts about you, but I need to go slowly. I think that if we would just not even talk on the telephone for a while, I will only think of the good things. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Given enough time alone, I'll probably beg you to come back. Please try to give me that time. Oof. Oh, this poor girl. Yeah. John went to a therapist to try to work through his anger. So, okay. And he told his coworker that he expected him and Dominique to get back together. According to his coworker, he was feeling really optimistic about it. <laughs> I mean, ugh. he's checking Over all the, the things off the list and thinking that, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Over the next couple of days, though, it seems Dominique had had time to reflect on things and she had resolved to end the relationship for good. She was done. She was planning to tell him it was over. Meanwhile, John's going around feeling pretty good, telling people that they're going to get back together. On the night before Halloween, October 30th, 1982, John was working his shift at Ma Maison. And while he was there, he sculpted a chocolate mask in Dominique's likeness. You know, just like super casual, not creepy at all. That's weird. Had he just made her like a cool chocolate thing? Great. Chocolate's awesome. It's delicious. That'd be a great gift. Sculpting it to look like her, that's where the obsession comes in. And this guy's still the head chef there, right? Still the head chef at Mama's. He's got all this time just to make his chocolate sculptures weird. I mean, I think he just like has his sous chefs like doing all the things. Yeah, that, that makes sense. He's just back there, like, fuming and sculpting chocolate. Just thinking about, like, working for somebody that's, like, doing that while you're, like, running an actual kitchen would make my eyes come out of my head, I think. (laughs) Yeah. So creepy. I just want to put it out there. I never want to receive any kind of mask that looks like me or has my face on it. Same. That's disturbing. Have you seen The Dropout? I'm going to guess that it's a no because you don't watch TV. Mm, No. The Dropout. What is that? It's like- about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Oh, uh, I watched a little bit of it. I, I had watched a, like a docu-series about it right before I started it. So oh, okay. it, felt, it started to feel redundant. And I, but I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, that I'm familiar. Sense. Okay. There's a scene in one of the episodes where everyone is wearing masks with her face on it. Oh, and weird. it's the thing of nightmares. Wow. It's fucking terrifying. So just, I don't need anything with my face on it. People. No, same. I, one's enough. <laughs> One one face of mine is plenty. So he sculpts this chocolate Dominique mask and gives it to a co-worker along with a box of hand-carved pumpkins and has that person. <laughs> I mean, that's what it was. And oh, it's Halloween. The, I forgot. It's Halloween. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> Halloween. And has that person deliver it to Dominique's home. And then he waits. He continues his shift at Ma Maison, expecting Dominique to call and be like, oh, my God, this is so nice or, you know, whatever. And she did call. But the conversation did not go as John had hoped. She told him the relationship was over. She was like, thanks for this fucking chocolate mask that looks like me, but it's over. Mm-hmm. When John hung up, his co-worker, Michael Feig, said he could tell it had not been a good phone call, but that John did not get angry. He wasn't yelling. He wasn't crying. He wasn't slamming his fists. 
he just got very quiet. Well, that's when scary people are the scariest. Exactly. Like when I was when I read that, or am I, I might have heard it on. Um, there's an E True Hollywood story about this case, and it's like pretty fucking detailed. But that was the part that I was like, oh. So he calls her back, but she didn't answer. Then he calls his therapist. This is still while he is at work at Mamezan. And he told his therapist he was, quote, losing it. His psychiatrist, Dr. Jeremy Ritzlin, asked, what do you mean? And John said, I can't control myself anymore. John then tried calling Dominique again and again and again, but she never answered. Dominique called up a friend, Kit McDonough, and told her what was going on and said she was planning to meet John for lunch the next day, which was a Sunday. Uh, And that was also Halloween. And her friend was like, why would you do that? And Dominique told her that John was really upset, not to worry. It's fine. She's just going to talk to him at lunch. At this point in the call, the operator breaks in and says, I have an emergency phone call from a John Sweeney to this number. Whoa. And Kit said, do not hang up on me for him. Do not take that call. But Dominique said, no, I better take it. He's really upset. He's acting nuts. I just, I just better talk to him. So she takes the call. And John asks if he can come over. And she said, no. What's the emergency? Yeah, right. While they were on the phone, there was a knock at her door. It was her friend and co-star, David Packer. The two were planning to rehearse a script for that series V that they were shooting. So they were just going to have like a little rehearsal that night. Well, of course, John hears this guy come in, so he's pissed. He hangs up, tells his coworker Michael he'll be back, and leaves. He then walks to Dominique's house. I don't think it was super far from where they from where he was. It was a little chilly out. It had rained earlier, so there were puddles everywhere in the streets. But I'm not sure he even noticed them because he was just tunnel vision. He was on a mission to see Dominique. He knocks on her door. And she opens it, but left the chain lock on. Mm -hmm. So she's talking him to him through this like small opening. David, who she was rehearsing with, said, would you like me to leave? And John says, yes, I'd appreciate that. But Dominique said, no, just stay inside the house. And she unlatches the chain, opens the door and steps outside to talk to John privately, closing the door behind her. The two begin arguing on the front porch. John starts pounding his fist on the windowsill. David hears this inside, calls a friend. The friend doesn't answer. He leaves a message on the machines that says, if I die tonight, John Sweeney did it. Then David begins looking over his script. I think he was just trying to like give himself something to do. Okay. Like, cause, if, cause when I first heard Strange it, I was like, pivot. <laughs> yeah, I was like, why wouldn't you, well, here's what's stranger. And I left this part out. I wasn't going to say it, but I might as well throw it in. After he left that message on his friend's answering machine, he put on the soundtrack to Poltergeist on the record player and started going over his lines. Oh, the only thing I could think of was maybe that was just the soundtrack that happened to be out, like the record that was lying out. Yeah. And he probably was trying to drown out the argument like, oh, this is a private conversation. I shouldn't hear that, you know, or whatever it was. 
it could be less weird than it sounds, but the circumstances are are strange. And it's Halloween. It is Halloween. So according to the police report, John then lunged at Dominique, put his hands around her throat, and began to choke her. And John was a big guy, remember. He was muscular, about six foot one. Dominique, on the other hand, was tiny. She was only five foot one and very petite. No matter how much she fought, she was no match for him. She was able to scream at first, and I don't know if this freaked John out. I think it might have. Like, maybe he was worried David would hear her scream. So he then dragged her by the throat to the house next door, dragged her up their driveway, which was about 50 or 60 yards, and into the backyard. Oh, my God. David had heard that scream, so he looked through the peephole but didn't see them, and he then called the LAPD. Okay. Okay, good. But the LAPD sucked back then. Oh, sure. The person that answered told David that there was nothing he could do because it was out of his jurisdiction, and if he was, quote, any kind of a man, he would go out there and help her himself. What? Imagine calling for help like your friend is in the process of being murdered and the cop tells you to go out there and take care of it yourself. Oh, my God. Like, what the fuck? I mean, he could have been he could have gotten killed. Like, it's just like, what? That's that's the opposite of aren't they supposed to tell you to get to safety? Like protect and serve. But that was not happening. Well, yeah. So David waits a few minutes, hoping the police are going to show up. They don't. Oh, my God. So he goes out the back door. Mind you, he's fucking terrified for his own life. Not just Dominique's. And he looks over into the neighbor's yard and sees John kneeling over Dominique. John then told David to call the police. So at 8.52 p.m., David calls the LAPD again. I don't know what occurred during this call, if he was able to speak with someone else or or what, but regardless, David was scared John was going to turn around and kill him, so he left. Yeah, that's smart. David found a payphone, called the police one more time. The police did finally show up. And when they did, John stepped forward with his hands up and said, I killed my girlfriend and I want to kill myself. While a deputy restrained John, two other deputies rushed over to help Dominique. Her throat was red and bruised and swollen. Her eyes were fixed and dilated. She wasn't breathing and she did not have a pulse. Police estimated she had been strangled between four and six minutes because that's how long it takes for a person to become brain dead from choking. However, she likely would have lost consciousness within the first 30 seconds, which weirdly makes you glad that she wouldn't have to be conscious the entire four minutes, but also shows you that John knew what he was doing because she would have stopped struggling Within those first 30 seconds, he would have known she was unconscious. She is clearly not a threat to him. But he kept choking her for at least three and a half more minutes. That's, yeah, that's fucked up. This was not a situation of he stopped because he'd feared he'd gone too far or whatever. This was him keeping his hands around her neck until he knew she was gone. 
Deputies began CPR right away, and her heart did start beating again. Five minutes later, an ambulance arrived and took her to Cedar sinai Medical Center, but she remained unconscious and was placed on life support. John was taken to the sheriff's station in West Hollywood, where he was questioned by Detective Harold Johnston. We like Harold Johnston. Okay. (laughs) Detective Johnston was the lead investigator on the case, and he said that John didn't really seem concerned about Dominique. He was more concerned about what was going to happen to him. Fuck right off. After interviewing John, Detective Johnston drove to Lenny's house, Dominique's mom to let her know that her daughter had been attacked and was on life support. It was about 2 a.m. in L.A. at this point. I'm not a mom, but I can only imagine the feeling you must get as a mother when a detective shows up at your house at 2 in the morning. Yeah, that's, yeah. From there, they phoned Dominic Dunn in New York. It was 5 in the morning his time, and he said that the phone ringing woke him up And he knew before he even answered it that it wasn't good. Detective Johnston told him what happened. And Dominic asked if he'd contacted Lenny. And he said, yes, I'm at her house now. Lenny got on the phone and said, I need you. And he said, I'll be on the first plane. Dominic telephoned his sons to let them know what had happened. And he started packing. He's just throwing clothes into a suitcase. It's frantic. He's like trying to get a flight and all this stuff. And then he pulled out a dark suit and tie. And he thought, maybe I should pack these. Oh. But then he thought, no, no, that's God. bad luck. I'm not going to take them. And at the last minute, he grabbed the suit and put it in a suitcase. Wow. Just that feeling of, oh, I might need to bring funeral clothes. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever had to think about that before, but that's, yeah. That oh, would, it's. Mm. By the time Dominic arrived in L.A. just a few hours later, it was all over the news that Dominique had been strangled and was in a coma. Friends started showing up at the hospital and at Lenny's house. Doctors spoke with Lenny and Dominic by phone to keep them informed, but told them they could not come see her yet. Once Griffin and Alex arrived in L.A. and it was time to go to the hospital, people discouraged Lenny from going because they worried it would aggravate her condition of multiple sclerosis. Stress is one of the worst things for multiple sclerosis patients, but she said she couldn't live with herself if she didn't go. Yeah, Yeah. what mom is going to be like, you're right, I'll just sit this one out. Yeah. Then altogether, the family went to see Dominique. When they got to the hospital, David Packer was there, her director from the series V was there, several other friends, and George Hamilton. He was a good family friend. He was there because his brother was in the ICU, and he had just happened to be there when they brought Dominique in. Oh, weird. A nurse told them only the immediate family was allowed in, mainly because they were worried about the press. And she said, prepare yourselves. It will be a shock when you see her. When they entered Dominique's room, her dad said he didn't even recognize her. She was hooked up to all kinds of tubes, and the machine allowing her to breathe caused her to do so with this jerking motion So every time she breathed, her body would jerk. Her head was completely shaved. There was a large bolt inserted into her skull to relieve pressure. And her eyes were open. Oh, my God. As Dominic put it, her eyes were massively enlarged, staring sightlessly up at the ceiling. 
Her neck was purple and swollen. You could clearly see the strangulation marks. At this point, Dominique was already brain dead. Lenny ended up being the strongest one out of all of them, actually. Everyone was so worried about her and like her condition, but she was kind of the one who took charge. And she wheeled her chair over to the side of the bed and just very calmly said, Hello, my darling. It's mom. We're all here, Dominique, Dad and Griffin and Alex. We love you. The doctors told the family that although her brain scan detected no signs of life, they would have to do three more scans so that at the trial, the defense couldn't claim that they had taken her off life support too soon. Oh, wow. Which was the first time her family was like, oh, right. If she dies, which that was looking more and more likely, there's going to be a murder trial. Yeah, that that's a weird place to be in. And this all happened so fast. Yeah. Oh, God. On November 4th, 1982, just 19 days before her 23rd birthday, Dominique Ellen Dunn was taken off life support. Lenny requested that her daughter's organs be, no- be donated, which her family said is exactly what she would have wanted. And in fact, there were two patients at the hospital at that time waiting on kidney transplants. Oh, that just gave me chills. Yeah. So when Lenny said this, the doctor started crying. He was like, this is kind of not meant to be, but, you know, he. Yeah. It was a very emotional time. If we're looking for silver linings. Yeah. Or, yeah. Like Lenny, anything, you're, yeah. At this point, you're trying positive. to find yeah. something like that. So yeah. her kidneys went to those patients and her heart was sent to a hospital in San Francisco. John Thomas Sweeney, who was originally arrested for attempted murder, was now arrested for first-degree murder. And that is where we're going to end part one. In part two, we'll talk about some of what Dominique's family went through following her death. We'll talk about the trial, the aftermath. We'll get into all of that. And we'll also learn that Dominique was not the first woman John Thomas Sweeney abused. Uh-oh. Uh-oh is right. So hopefully, Cassie, I haven't scared you away. <laughs> do you want to still come back for part two? I do. You were not lying when you said this is a heavy episode. It's really tough. <laughs> and I hate that Ooh. guy. He oh, sucks. just wait. Just wait. Uh, we try to find the lighter moments in episodes, especially like this one. Um, know that we are not like making fun of anything or trying to make a joke out of it. It's just sometimes you need a little bit of that levity. And hopefully you liked what we were able to inform you about. Um, Maybe you learned something new. If so, give us a rating, review, and subscribe. We we need those reviews and it really means a lot to us and it helps us out a lot. Uh, You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at at Horrorwood Podcast. Yes. And you can send us an email at horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're feeling so inclined, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Horrorwood Podcast. Perfect. You can become one of our misfit murderinos over there. Uh, so a huge thank you to Cassie for being here. You were awesome. Oh my God. Thank you for having me. Loved it. Before I cue up the outro music, I'm going to let this run for four more minutes in silence. If you're listening to this while you're making dinner or driving in your car or exercising, I'm going to ask that you not turn off the podcast just yet. This will play another four minutes, the minimum amount of time Dominique was strangled at the hands of John Thomas Sweeney. 
there is a reason I'm doing this. It's not just so you can get a sense of what she went through. It's going to come back in part two. After those four minutes are up, you'll hear our theme music play. Starting now. 